Let us pray together. Thank you for your word, our Father. We are eager to see what you will say to us through it today. And we know we need to hear it. Bless us, help us all, both the preacher and his fellow hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 18, and right now we are in a subset. Five steps of Christian discipline. This will be a few different parts uh, with the little interruption of Resurrection Day next Sunday. And we're going to find three surprises in today's part one on Christian discipline. The first surprise, I think if anybody were asked, well, what is Matthew 18 about? You'd answer, well, it's about church discipline. But only the last two steps are about the church. It doesn't start off involving the church. Only if it comes to it, at the end of the process is the church involved. And if we were asked, we would say that this discipline, well, another word for that we'd say is excommunication, but again, that's just the last step if it comes to that. It's not the whole process. In fact, the word discipline, the word translated discipline in other passages, paideia, is a word that that encompasses training, It encompasses education. It encompasses correction. That's a lot more than just excommunication. So those are two surprises. Only church discipline in the last steps. Only excommunication in the very last step. And then again, if you're asked how many steps are there in this process, I think most of us would say there's four steps. And yet you see the title, Five Steps of Christian Discipline. Well, we're going to see why I call it five by starting with the first today. But before we even do, before we even get into the uh, outline, I always carry a burden on my heart. Um, I don't know who's hearing these sermons. I don't know every person here. I don't know who it reaches on the internet. Uh, Many are believers in Christ. Um, And then there are those who know that they're not Christians, and they listen to the sermon knowing that they're listening from the outside. As I talk about the practice of the Christian life, they, they know that I'm talking about a life they don't yet have, and that conversion lies between them and that life. But I'm always concerned for those who think that they are Christians and are not. A great many of these are churchgoers. Uh, that could be in this church. They maybe have gone to church all their lives. Their, their parents have brought them, a spouse brings them. Or maybe they go to church because they like the music, they like the nice people, they like the nice activities. It's possible to go to some churches and be deeply involved in the church activities and, and nobody ever comes and notices that you're not actually a believer yourself. You don't actually know what the gospel is. In some churches you can go for a great long time without actually hearing the gospel. So I want to make sure that you do hear the gospel because what I'm talking about here is something that has to do with the Christian life. And none of us is born into the Christian life. We can only be born again into the Christian life. Uh, As we're all born, we're all born under the judgment of God. And we all grow up as sinners in rebellion against God. God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. He counts our lives by His standard and His law not our hearts and our feelings, and certainly not a poll of our peers in our society. And we're all breakers of God's law. We are all rebels against God's will. And God can't just wink this off. He he doesn't just shrug this off if we mean well. Uh, Each sin is an infinitely uh, wicked sin against an infinitely good God. There's no way to work our way out of it. Even if we were to say today, well, I, I won't sin anymore, that does nothing for the sins we've already sinned. They're already piled up against us. They already witness against us. Were we to try to enter God's presence, those sins would stand loom before us and would call for the judgment and the wrath of God. But God, in His great love for sinners, in His mercy, because of the great love with which He loved His people, sent God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become a human being, to live that righteous life among us we'd never lived, and himself to fulfill the law of God. And having done that, having spoken the word of God, this perfect man, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, hung on the cross bearing the sins of sinners from all over the world, men and women from all tribes, nations, and tongues, and bore those sins before God so that that judgment that I deserve fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. That judgment each of us deserves fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. The justice of God, the wrath of God were visited on His person as He hung on the cross forsaken of God. He died. He was buried. 
He lay in the tomb, and on the third day he rose physically from the grave, never to die again, calling to all and any to come to him for life and salvation. And so he calls now. He calls us to come to him. He calls us to believe in him. Uh, He comes for the worst of sinners. There is no sin so vile. We may not speak of it. We may not dare to speak of our sins. But there is no sin Jesus' blood cannot atone for. Jesus' blood is his life shed out for sinners. And so we need to turn to him. Turn from our sin to Jesus. We need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He talks about this actually at the beginning of this chapter. As he reminds these disciples who've raised the issue of who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus goes a lot more fundamental on them and shocks them by saying at the start of the chapter, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we never enter the citizenship of God's people unless we're converted, which means to turn around from the life we're living following our heart and following our own desires turn around to the Lord Jesus Christ and become as little children, or as the Bible says it elsewhere, are born again, given a new heart from God as a gift. Unless that happens, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, he says, uh, having called a little child out, this little child, Jesus calls him, he just comes, and he just puts himself at Jesus' disposal. He hears the voice of Jesus and comes to it. And so he says, whoever will humble himself as this child, he's the greatest uh, in the kingdom of heaven. So this is what we all need, or else the rest of it is simply academic. And, and rules for Christian living will never do anybody any good if he's not a Christian. And you know going a church, to a church doesn't make you a Christian. You can jump into a pond, but does that make you a bullfrog? No, it does not. And being in a church doesn't make us a Christian. The only thing that marks a Christian is the person who's converted who's born again, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that person becomes a child of God. Simply as a gift. Simply because of what Jesus did on the cross for sinners. And simply received by faith in Christ. Not just faith that, this, that, or the other thing, but faith in Christ that looks to Him and leans on Him. So, my question to you right now is, as you hear Jesus' voice, you've not come to Jesus, do you hear Him calling you in this? Do you hear that and you think, I wish I could know that. I wish I could know that life and that forgiveness. Well then, that is how Jesus calls his sheep. That is how Jesus calls those the Father gave him to save. And you hear Jesus' voice, you come. You come and then this and everything and all of the promises of the Bible, they are yours and they are for you. And anybody here who knows Jesus would love to help you. If you have questions, I would love to help you if you have questions. But I just wanted to make that as clear as possible before we get on to anything else in the chapter. So let's go to the first uh, number, Roman numeral one. The first step is self-confrontation. You say, oh. (laughs) You think the first step is when my brother sins and I go confront him. No, no. The first step should be self-confrontation. And if I've done that, then the second step never needs to happen. Right? Well, let me spell that out for you. Self-confrontation. And maybe I trick you a little because the verses that spell that out are verses 8 and 9 before the section that we're in. Self-confrontation. We just read them. Verses 8 and 9. The way I translated it was, but if your hand or your foot trips you up, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye trips you up, tear it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life one-eyed than having two eyes to be cast into the Gehenna of fire. He addresses this to us. So the first step is the need for self-confrontation. Well, what is the problem, letter A? What is the problem that we're all facing, all of us Christians? The problem, first of all, is we're all packing Yep, that's what goes in the blank. We're all packing and not in a good way. What we're packing is not good. What are we packing? Even as Christians, remember now I'm talking to Christians, people who've been born again. Turn to Romans 7 because we'll be there a a while. And when I ask you to turn, I'm not speaking metaphorically, please literally turn there and point your eyes there. I'm going to do everything I can to get these words into all of our hearts so that they go with us wherever we go. Something we'll talk about a little bit later. So look at Romans 7, verses 18 and 19 to begin with. 
What does Paul, speaking as a Christian, I believe, say in verse 18? For I know that nothing good dwells in me. What? Oh, he's going to specify. That is in my flesh. Now, what's the flesh? It's the remnants of sin. Yes, he's got a new heart. He's got a new mind. The Holy Spirit lives in him, but he's still in his unglorified body. And the patterns of sin, the habit patterns, what he's accustomed to, the desires still pull and tug at him. So he says, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the willing is present to me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And all God's people said, Amen. It's a regretful amen though this time. But we all know the truth of that. We carry in ourselves the remaining stirrings of sin and that will not be all gone until we see Jesus face to face until, as he says at the end, we're delivered from the body of this death. But praise God for all Christians that day is coming. One day the struggle will be past forever. Lord hasten that day. But now this is our life. Now, I'll I'll quote to you, but you can stay in Romans. Galatians 5.17, Paul says the same sort of thing. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. I'm indwelt by the spirit, but I live in the flesh, and they want two very different things. And so there's a conflict, Paul says there, and he says here, we are beset with weakness and temptation, not just outside, but within. And that's 24-7, 365, everywhere we go. Why? Because everywhere you go, there you are. (laughs) And we bring our flesh with us. And I keenly remember a time of struggle when I went off to be by myself decades ago uh, in the Sierra, beautiful place, all by myself, And the temptation was right there with me. The struggle I was having was right there. Why? Because we carry it between our ears. It's with us wherever we go. We're all packing. And that's why there's a problem. That's why there's a problem we have. And then, as if that weren't enough, there is also the world and the devil. But we carry enough hell inside of us that even without the world and the devil, we'd have a real tussle. So we're all packing, and not in a good way, but secondly, we're all our own packers. That is to say, we're responsible for ourselves. We're packing, and we're our own packers. We're responsible for ourselves. Stay in Romans, but let me read to you Galatians 6, 5. Very briefly and pointedly, the apostle says, for each one will bear his own load. Each of us is responsible for ourselves. Each of us is responsible for our walk. These words I just read to you from Jesus, verses 8 and 9, they're addressed to you. And he doesn't say if your brother's foot trips him up, cut, it, cut his leg off. <laughs> it's my leg, it's my hand, it's my eye that I'm responsible for. But you're in Romans, so look back at chapter 6 and look at verses 11 and 12. Now, in chapter 6, the question's been raised, well, should I just... Uh, live in sin so there might be more grace. I mean, there was a lot of sin and there was even more grace. So if I sin even more, there'd be even more, more grace. And Paul says, oh, come on. That, that's the, the literal Greek there. Oh, come on. And he explains, no, no. When you, when you were baptized, that was a testimony that you died to sin. Your immersion into Christ was a, a real death to sin. And your uh, uh, rising with him was a, a rising to a new life where sin is not your Lord. But even though that's the case, look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. So it's not automatic and magical. I need to get my own thinking lined up. You, he says, your name here. Picture a blank, your name here. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Nobody can do that for me. I'm accountable to make that calculation. And that's the the nuance of that Greek word. You make this calculation. You think of it this way. And then verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Who is he talking to? 
He's talking to me. I, I must not let sin reign. So it's an option that I might let it have the reins, to use a different spelling, but I'm not to let it reign because I needn't and I shouldn't. But that's me. I'm responsible for that. I'm accountable for that. So before we even talk about a brother confronting me for sin or three brothers or the church, there's me. There's you responsible for ourselves. And now look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So we started 7, went back to 6, and now we're in 8. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, so then, brothers, we are under obligation. Paul is, those Roman Christians are, you are, I am. We are, literally, we are debtors. We are indebted. Oh, really? Who do I owe? Well, he says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I don't owe it to the flesh to give in to its desires and its cravings. Man, there's a good reason not to. He says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must, die. you must die. Literally, you're about to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. As I've said, that's an incredibly dense little half a verse there. Worth a sermon all by itself. So I can't do this but I must do this. If by the Spirit you are putting to, the de to death the practices of the body, I can't do it by myself, but I can do it by the Spirit. And listen to me, He won't do it for me. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body. So, I'm the packer. I'm the one God holds accountable for this. God gives me ability. God does great work for me and in me and then calls me to respond. Also, Romans 14, 12. Uh, turn there or not, just going to touch on it, but Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, perhaps you want to wag a finger at me and say, oh, but you've talked about Hebrews 13, 17 that says that the Leaders um, need to give account for our souls. And that's true, I do, because it, it does. But that's not instead of. <laughs> that's an additional. You have an, a responsibility to be accountable for yourself, and I have a responsibility to be accountable for myself. And I must answer for the care that I give the sheep under my care. But each of us will give an account of himself to God. So why didn't you grow? Why did you do this with your life? This is something I must answer for. And the answer, answers that will be accepted will not begin with the words, but my wife, or but my husband, or but my children, or but my pastor. Maybe that a little bit, but hopefully not. But my pastor, but my society, but my mother dropped me on my head when I was little. This, this will not be admitted as uh, acceptable response. We will give account for ourselves before God. And you say, yes, terrible be an unbeliever. It, well, yes, it is, but this verse is not to unbelievers. <laughs> this verse is to believers. Each of us will give account of ourselves. It's not like you become a Christian and nothing matters till the rapture. <laughs> that is not biblical Christian living. Everything matters. Everything matters, and everything will come into review before God. Uh, even the careless words we utter, Jesus says. So, uh, there's the problem. We're all packing, and we're all our own packers. So, if somebody were to say, well, this thing about vigilance that I think you're talking about and being responsible for myself, it's not really an issue for me. I don't really have issues. I, I don't really have, well, sin to deal with or weaknesses? Of course, your answer would probably be about the same as mine. Well, we could start talking about pride. Perhaps we could start there when we talk about your needs and your weaknesses and your sins. And then truthfulness. And then rejecting the Word of God, which says that we all have these struggles. Except you? Really? No, that's not what Scripture says. Hopefully what people say Christians hearing this as they say, yeah, I know this exactly. Yes, I do know I have struggles. And that is why we need to maintain a constant vigilance as we're going to now talk about. It's not an academic issue to Christians. It's never an academic issue to Christians. This will never cease being an issue to us until we see Jesus literally face to face. Are we seeing Jesus literally face to face? Not yet. 
So that means we're still on the battlefield. And that means we still need to watch. How do we watch? Let's talk about that now. Capital letter B, practice. We've talked about the problem. Let's talk about practice. <clears throat> and fundamentally, if we want to talk about the practice, number one, fundamentally, we need to note that this is a command. So talking about the practice of this step one of Christian discipline, fundamentally, we must note that this is a command. A, a command. A command as opposed to what? As opposed to a suggestion. As opposed to a proposal. As opposed to just saying. Now there's something Jesus never says. Uh, if your eye causes you to stumble, stumble, pluck it out. If you want to, just saying. That is not Jesus. <laughs> Amen, Jesus says. I say to you, Jesus says. He's in earnest. He doesn't even need to be. Just being Jesus makes it earnest to those who confess Him as Lord. So He says, uh, you've got a, a, a hand that trips you up, a foot, an eye. Well, you cut it off. He says, you cut it off. You pluck it out. That's addressed to me. He's not saying don't worry about it. God will take care of this. He doesn't say you should maybe consider. He doesn't say, well, practice. issues it as a command. You and I, we see this, we must take this action. We've got to get rid of it. So that is, that is his word to us. It's a word of command. It's a word that puts the responsibility on our shoulders. Now, suppose somebody were to say, and if you think that this is fictitious, oh, don't think that, I wish it were, I wish that there were nobody who would say this, but if there was somebody who were candid, candid enough to say, but I'm saved, then doesn't matter. Well, the full answer to that could take up a very full sermon, but I'm just going to be very brief now. What would I say to someone who, in response to what I just said, said, First thing that I would say is, well, actually, the Bible say, it says you are saved by grace through faith. Through faith. Now, Jesus says that this is a big issue. That if we see this in our hearts, we must get rid of it. So if I don't think it's a big issue, then what is the conclusion? Well, I don't believe Jesus. He says it's a big issue. I disagree. So I don't believe in him. Or to put it another way, I don't have faith in Jesus. Or to put it another way, I'm not saved. Faith is not just subscription to a couple of propositions about Jesus. Faith rests on the person of Jesus. And it says amen to everything he says and everything he is. So, Jesus doesn't say this is urgent and have me say, oh, well, but grace. And that's obviously not correct, because that's obviously not Jesus' view. Uh, we're not saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by grace apart from faith. So, fundamentally, we need to note this is a command. Secondly, essentially, we see the practice in Matthew 26, 41. I might just turn there, though we'll look at it briefly, but Matthew 26, 41. It's brief, but it's pointed. So Jesus has taken his closest friends, his intimates with him, on the eve of his arrest, Peter, James, and John, and he says to them in verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he says this to the choicest apostles. I dare say we should take heed to it. If it applies then and to them, then it applies now to us and always. Amen? Words we should take to heart. We are on the battlefield as surely as they. And notice that there's a, a twofold involvement. First, he says, keep watching. Watching what? 
I'm watching myself because he says he talks about temptation and he says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. So I'm watching for temptation knowing that I don't have, uh, that, that I'm weak, that I'm temptable, that I'm vulnerable to this. So I have to keep an eye on myself all the time because I know how I am or I should. And knowing how I am is a good reason to keep an eye on myself, knowing that I, I can't be trusted by myself not to recognize, or I can't be trusted to recognize, and I can't be trusted to reject temptation. I need to keep a constant watch. Indeed, this is a, a present tense. I need to keep at this, not just now, but always keep watching and praying because I know that I don't have the resources within myself. It is from weakness I cry out to God. It's my weakness that drives me to God. And so I pray to him because I'm in need. I pray to him because I'm lacking and know I'm lacking. And knowing that he alone has what I lack in myself. So keep watching, keep praying, and nobody can do this for me. Yes, it's good to know people are praying for me, but they can't pray instead of me. Yes, it's good to have people praying for my soul, but they don't replace my soul. They don't stand in the stead of my soul. I've got to pray myself. And so he says them to them, you keep watching, you keep praying. And the only reason why I would think this doesn't apply to me is if I don't realize just how uh, weak my flesh is, no matter how willing uh, my spirit is. And I might add, the flesh is, is uh, weak, but it's also willing. <laughs> but what it wills is not what the spirit wills. <laughs> what it wills is in the wrong direction. So, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus says, so we must keep a constant watch. That's the essence of it, but let me tease this out in a little more detail to give some more specifics for what we need to do. It's to unpack this. Number three, specifically, we've looked at it essentially, but now we look at it specifically. So, pardon me, but is this microphone just dead? That's very sad. Have a moment of silence for for this microphone and it's passing. So that means I'll need to stand behind the pulpit. I can't, I'm not prone to wander. I am prone to wander, but I mustn't. So unpacking that specifically, we're going to look at Psalm 119. So please do turn there with me. Psalm 119, about the middle of your Bible. And I'll just single out four steps. Is this exhaustive? Of course not. (laughs) But is it useful? It will be. So the first step that I need to do if I'm going to be vigilant for the danger that is inside myself, the first thing I need to do is I need to draw the grid. I need to have something there that helps me even recognize temptation, let alone know what to do with it. I need to draw the grid. And what verses show me that? Verses 9 and 11. So look at Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. First, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Pro tip, that doesn't just apply to young men. And it doesn't just apply to men. (laughs) It's the only way all of us, but often scripture speaks to young men because they're needing to get this grid in place particularly. Doing it later in life is too late, and boy, the regrets that have piled up by then. Boy, the regrets that have piled up. So draw the grid. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Can I keep God's word without knowing God's word? I can't. So obviously the intent of this is practical. It's about my way, the way I live, the choices that I make. But it's keeping it according to his word. In order to do that, I've got to draw the grid by his word. I need to know what his word says. Look at verse 11 as well. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may win at Bible trivia. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, huh? So that I can amaze and amuse my friends. Oh, no, it doesn't say that either. So I can own the libs on Twitter. Oh, it doesn't say that either. What does it say? That I may not sin against you. Now, obviously, uh, I've, some translations say I, 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 hid my, I hid thy word in my heart. And some hide it all too well. (laughs) Uh, Treasure is a good translation. But hid is a a fair one as well if if the idea is that I put it there securely so as not to lose it. But I've treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin. So we'll never recognize temptation without God's word. We don't know what it is. So you're a wife. You want to be a godly wife? Praise the Lord. 
what's a, what's a godly wife? What are the things that tempt women unique, uniquely that you've got to watch out for according to the Bible? What, what are the imperatives God gives women uniquely that you've got to be eager to follow according to the Bible? Or husbands don't think you'll escape. You want to be a godly husband. Praise the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that not mean? What does that exclude? Well, you've got to know the, the word to know that. Want to be a godly church member? Got to know the word. Want to be a godly neighbor, godly parent, godly child? It's not enough to feel that, or to want that, or to have good intentions. That's not what this verse says. I've got to hide God's word in my heart. Only that way do I know, listen, only that way do I know what he wants me to do, and only that way do I know the contrary and recognize a temptation or a practice that is the opposite of what God is calling me to do, only by putting God's word in my heart. And I point out again, this is not addressed to specialists, it's not addressed to priests or pastors or deacons even, it's not addressed to any specialist, simply to believers, and it's very individual. I, I have hidden your word in my heart. I have treasured it in my heart. Do we see anybody modeling this? Well, let's say Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Things that if you were to take it in the abstract that, that might be sensible suggestions, well, yes, if you're starving and you have the power to make bread out of rocks, that might be a good idea. But Jesus knew these as not good ideas and the source is not good. And the way he responded in each case to Satan's temptations is by quoting scripture which he had... Do you think that he pulled out into his little, uh, his, his little um, uh, purse his handy-dandy portable scroll and said, oh, hang on a second, I'm sure this is in Deuteronomy someplace. Hang on, I know, I know it's here. I got it highlighted. Do you think that's what he did? He had it in, in his heart. He had it on his heart and so he was able to fire it right back at Satan. How did he do that? Magic? Because he's the son of God? No, he, he learned it. He's a human being as well, 100% human. And he, he memorized that scripture. He had it with him in the wilderness. He thought he'd need it, but we don't, right? Mm, that math don't work. So you've got to draw the grid. It's got to be on your heart, he says. Let me just give you a few uh, no extra charge scriptures. Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. Right after the, there's only one God, and after the love the Lord your God with all your heart, we see in Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, my mind, so that they go with me everywhere I go. Uh, Proverbs 6.20-23, that's worth looking at, not to imply that the others aren't, but, but turn to Proverbs 6 with me. This is very powerful. Proverbs 6.20-23. My son... Observe the commandments of your father and do not abandon the law of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Now just to pull out a few highlights, bind them continually on your heart. What's the point of that? What is my heart? It's my mind. It's the center of my affections, my thinking, my deciding. And that's where God's word needs to be. And why is that? Because only thus will it go with me everywhere I go. Verse 22, when you walk about, they will lead you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you wake, they'll speak with you. And they're a lamp and they're the way of life. You see, but only if I have them in my heart so that where I go, they go. And when I think... And when I love things and hate things, and when I decide what to reject and what to accept, God's word is there guiding those thoughts, guiding those feelings, guiding those values, guiding those decisions. They need to be on my heart. Proverbs 7.3 says similarly, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. So it's a great thing to have a Bible on the shelf. Lots of people going to hell have Bibles on their shelves. But where we need God's word is in our hearts. And nobody can write them there but us. We're called to do that. So first, draw the grid. Secondly, point the lamp. Oh, I told you Psalm 119, I took you away from it. I hope you kept your place. 
back to Psalm 119, verse 105. Point the lamp. You said, oh, I think that's an error, Pastor. Didn't you mean to say light the lamp? No, the, the lamp's lit. What I need to do is I need to point it. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, now what does that call us to assume? Well, it calls us to assume the path is, is dark. Now you say, oh, that's awful simple. It is, but I think a lot of people forget that. Uh, I think it is getting harder and harder to forget if you look around at the world as a Christian. It does seem to be getting darker and darker, have you noticed? But if anyone thinks, oh no, and I've heard people think, and this is always the sign of bad things to come, I've heard even professed Christians say, they think most, most people have basically good sense, and most people know what's right in their hearts, and most people have pretty good judgment, and, and mostly people will choose the best things, and oh boy, you have not been reading your Bible, have you? <laughs> you, you don't know what God says about us, do you? And you haven't been looking at the world through that lens, have you? Because no, the path is dark, and the path has made them more dark because I walk it in my flesh. And the flesh is always there to make bad suggestions. <laughs> the flesh is always there to say, no, no, that way looks best. That looks, that's a lot smoother. That's a lot easier. Go that way. Go that way. I need to. I need to. You need to. It'll be good for you. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. No, but that's not the right way. How do I know that? Well, I got a light that shows me, see, but only if I pointed at the path. Only if I pointed at my walk. You notice that? Your word is a lamp to my feet. Why? Because you need to look at your feet? <laughs> No, because you walk with your feet. You need a light to see where you should put your feet. It's a very practical picture. I need to walk, but I need to know where to put my feet. Oh, good thing I've got a lamp for my feet. And a light to my path. What, what is the path? It's the way I live. It's the choices I make. It's how I spend my time, my affections, my resources, how I invest myself, what lights me up. That's to be guided by the Word of God. And... That's what God gives it for, for a light in this darkness. But a light is useless if we leave it at home, isn't it? The best flashlight in the world won't do you a, a, a lick of good if you leave it in your glove compartment when you go walking. Or if you leave it at home in the garage, it won't do you any good. And it also won't do you any good if you don't flick it on and point it at the path. So we need to draw the grid, and then to change the metaphor, we need to point the lamp. Yes, we know God's word, but apply God's word. It's, it's not just so you can draw a nifty prophecy chart and show how long the tribulation is and where the seals and trumpets and bowls fall and all that. That's not what that's about. It's about seeing how to live. And there's a place for that chart too, but I digress. Second point, the lamp. Third, keep watching. Verse 59. Keep watching. What does verse 59 say? I thought upon my ways, and I turned my feet to your testimonies. So brief, we need to unpack that a bit. I thought about my ways. Well, wouldn't that make a change in some people's lives? Some people just, they, 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 they live like a, a, a snowball uh, rolling down a, a, a snowy mountainside. They live like, like a tumble. <laughs> Their life is more of a tumble than a walk. But no, we're to think about our ways. Again, what are our ways? It's our choices. It's our activities. So I'm to think about it. I'm to analyze it. I'm to uh, uh, hold it up to the light and assess it. And then he says, and I turn my feet to your testimony. So the right study of the word of God leads to the right study of my lives, of my life in that light. I think about my way. I hold it up to the word of God. And I conform my life to the word and what you see today in the ever dissipating jellyfish that is evangelicalism in america is more and more people doing the exact opposite they see what they want and so they conform the word of god to that no, homosexuality really is okay oh this this and that another fad really is okay i've made the bible say that that's not christian discipleship Think about my way, and I don't turn his testimonies to my way. I turn my feet to his testimonies. Here, uh, Spurgeon on this. Action without thought is folly, and thought without action is sloth, laziness. To think carefully and then to act promptly is a happy combination. 
He, the psalmist here, had entreated for renewed fellowship, and now he proved the genuineness of his desire by renewed obedience. Keep watching. Fourth, get and stay humble. Get and stay humble. Verses 67 and 71. Take a look there. It's a, it's a dear section of this psalm. We'll just look at a couple of verses, though. Verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Interesting, so there is a, he makes a connection between discipleship and affliction. Now, afflicted is an interesting word in Hebrew. It means to be brought low. It means to be humbled by hardship. The sort of hardship that brings someone down, that humbles the proud and the one who's full of himself and full of uh, uh, confidence and, and, uh, and uh, vim and vigor. No, but then affliction comes and he's brought low. He's, he's bowed over. And so this is God's discipline in his life has humbled him. And now he keeps his word. Now he's not so much... Uh, confident in his own native strength as he is needing God's word, needing to live by God's word. In fact, verse 71 says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So there is no real learning of God's word without being humbled, without humility. Now, if we don't do it ourselves, God will do it to us. It's slightly less painful if we do it to ourselves. <laughs> but it's always painful. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 5? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves. Now, if I don't, he will. But I need to be humble because a proud man does not obey Scripture. A proud man may do this and that that suit his purpose, but he won't humble himself. Under the, he doesn't bow his knee to the lordship of Christ. He doesn't put himself under the word of God. So pride and a, a holy walk are opposites. They're opposites. So I need to stay and I need to keep humble. And if my Bible study is having the effect of making me more and more proud because I'm so much smarter than other people, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> I'm just as simple as that. If knowing more of the Bible makes me more insufferable, I'm doing it wrong. Real Bible reading is humbling. Can I get an amen to that? Because God exposes our hearts. And we see our hearts in the light of... We think that's a pretty white sheet of paper in there. And then we hold it up against Christ. It doesn't look so white anymore. <laughs> it doesn't look so anything good anymore. And that's what Bible study is supposed to do. It's supposed to humble us and, and keep us there. Proverbs 16:18 says... Pride goes before a happy Christian walk. No, it's not how you learned it, is it? Pride goes before destruction. The Hebrew word means breaking, a big crash. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So this is the first step of Christian discipline that we've just finished looking at. It's not somebody confronting another person about a sin he's already committed. The first step of Christian discipline is my self-confrontation, watching over myself in the light of God's word. I take responsibility for my own walk before God, and I don't have anyone else to blame or, or shift the blame onto. I take responsibility for my own walk, my own spiritual health. I load God's word into my heart prayerfully and humbly so as to make my heart sensitive, ready, vigilant, prepared, and I stay alert, watchful, and humble. If we do, there are rewards. Let her see. There are rewards. Personally, what are the rewards? Well, as to conscience, letter A, as to conscience, there's 2 Corinthians 1.11, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So Paul, as always, is under criticism and under fire by false teachers and sectarians and schismatics. And he says, I can come and talk to you with a clear conscience. I don't need to be defensive or angry or threatened because I know I've walked before you in godly sincerity and holiness. He's, he's applied this process. And as he'll explain in chapter 11, 12, he's definitely been humbled. 
but he is able to face them with a good conscience. First uh, Timothy 1.5, this is very powerful, but the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Now reading the English, you might think that the goal is fivefold, but it's really only one. Love that comes from three, th- fivefold, math is not my best thing, fourfold, sorry. Love coming from three sources. Love that comes from a pure heart. Love that comes from a good conscience. And love that comes from an unhypocritical faith. So how many of God's commands have to do with love? Most of them. Probably all of them, really. And so a good conscience is related to love. Guilt cripples love. I won't get into relationships if I'm crawling around with guilt. I'll be scared, I'll be defensive, I'll be prickly, I'll be evasive. I won't be able to serve anyone in love when I'm hiding from everyone in guilt. Does that make sense? So the goal of the instruction is love that comes from a good conscience. And a good conscience is achieved by the way we've been studying today. Guilt and fear will cripple us. So it's very rewarding as to conscience. Secondly, it's rewarding as to confidence. Confidence before man, first of all. Number one, Proverbs 28, 1 is a wonderful verse. Proverbs 28, 1. The wicked flee when there is no one pursuing, but the righteous are as secure as a lion. I'm sure you've had that happen. You talk to someone and there's such instant defensiveness and you weren't even trying to say anything. What's going on there? Some form of fear, probably some form of guilt. Or you say, yeah, I am familiar with that from having been that person. I know that feeling. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so think of how that fits into Matthew 18. Somebody comes up on the next step of discipline and says to you those dreadful words in a, in a church context, I'm concerned. Uh-oh. Well, what is your immediate response? Is, is my immediate response defensive and angry and offended? Well, if that's the case, I've not been doing this, right? I've not been doing this. But if I've been doing all the things we just studied and someone says, some brother or sister comes up and says, you know, I, I'm just concerned and I want to talk to you. My response is, oh, thank you. Yes, please do. I appreciate your caring for me that much. That can't be easy. Yeah, tell me. I want to hear Because if it's something that's going to trip me up, I want to know about it. If it's something I've missed, I want to know. If it's hurting my relationship with God or my testimony or my service, yeah, this is something I've committed myself to killing dead. So yes, please do tell me. You say nobody talks like that. Well, you know, we could learn to. (laughs) Because won't that grow out of this kind of process? If somebody who comes up and helps me, he's my friend. I want to kill all the sins in my heart and somebody comes to help me and loves me enough. Well, thanks. That's what I need. What did the verse say we started the service with? I counted a kindness. Um, so, Scripture shows the right spirit. For instance, the verse we started the sermon with, the service with, Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me in loving kindness and reprove me. It is oil on the head. Let not my head refuse it. Psalm 141, 5. Proverbs 9, verses 8 and 9 just to read the, the middle of those two verses, reprove a wise man and he will love you. <laughs> reprove, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Why? Because you're helping him do what he's already doing. Do you see? Give knowledge to a wise man and he will be still wiser. But then you read the first part of verse 8, don't reprove a scoffer, he'll hate you. And so Proverbs fifteen thirty-one and 32 say, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will lodge among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises his soul. But he who listens to reproof acquires a heart of wisdom. So yes, it's very re- rewarding before man and before God. 1 John three twenty-one and 22. 1 John three twenty-one and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So I don't come before God plagued with guilt or having no idea what his will is. I know what his word is. I've been seeking to walk in his ways, pointing the lamp at my path and walking that path. And so I know that when I ask according to his will, he'll hear me. 
And I don't need to worry about guilt occluding our relationship. Uh, but also add 2 Corinthians 13.5, which is really where we started the service. But again, that's free at no extra charge. Uh, why I started the service with the gospel, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So this gives us ways to test ourselves and see if we're in the faith. And if we test ourselves and we are, then that adds to our confidence. And that's very rewarding individually. But it's also rewarding corporately, number two. And that's going to take us right back into the next part of Matthew 18, isn't it? Not today, don't fear, in future sermons. But uh, that's what it's about, our corporate walk, isn't it? Our walk together. Philippians 1.27 says, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. This is the goal, a church united around Christ, a church of people all looking to the same person, all walking in the same direction, down the same path, with the same priorities. And so that will also affect our personal walk as well as our walk with each other. I look for the sin in my life to kill it, as Jesus orders me to do, but I also will help my brothers and sisters, and I will welcome their help as they come along to help me in my walk with Christ. Because this is what the whole body is about. And what will shatter that unity? Well, sin will. Because obviously to the degree that anybody is, is affected by sin, he's not walking down that path with that priority in that direction, is he? And what happens when the church knows about this, and it's a sin of the magnitude that affects the whole church, is public and scandalous, as we'll talk about, but the, the church doesn't do anything about that. Then, then what's the testimony of that church? It's not a testimony about the, the loveliness of Christ or the lordship of Christ, is it? So you see how all this hangs together, and it all begins with my own individual, personal Christian discipline before the Lord, as he calls me to. The place to kill sin, the first place to kill sin, is in my heart by the vigilance of Christian discipline. So the health and ministry of any church depends on each member's personal discipline and walk with Christ. And the weak link that I need to worry myself most about in the church is the weak link between my own two ears. And that's what this calls us to. God help us. The price of failure is very high. But the joys of walking this way are very great. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for its sharp character and its living nature. We thank you that in it we hear your heart. And my prayer, my earnest prayer would be for anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus, churchgoer or not, Christian family or not, but not saved that the Holy Spirit will work on that person's heart, lead that person to hear Christ's call, lead that person to come in repentant faith to the saving Lord Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, help us to apply and walk in the ways of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.